kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. up next. Cover to cover. Stay tuned. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Carrie Perloff, currently in her 20th year as Artistic Director of American Conservatory Theater in San Francisco. ACT is currently playing Samuel Beckett's Endgame and Play, which are directed by Carrie Perloff. Recently, she also directed Pinter's The Homecoming, and her play Hire premiered in San Francisco at Zeeum, which I think has a different name now, but we'll call it Zeeum, <laughs> in uh, San Francisco in February. Next season, she'll be directing Electra. Carrie Perloff, there are so many things that have been happening at ACT in the past year, but I want to start with what's playing there now, which is the two Samuel Beckett plays. How did they come to your attention to do now? And particularly, why did you decide to put this short piece, Play, mm. which is an astonishing little piece? It's only 20 minutes right, long. Right. Why did you decide to match that up with Endgame? Is that what normally happens? No, it's a really good question. When Endgame was very first produced, it was done with Craps Last Tape. That is a huge meal to handle in one evening. That just seemed way too much. The way it came about is that uh, as I was planning my my 20th anniversary season, I made a list of all the artists who'd been closest to ACT and to me over the years and whom I thought our audience would most love to celebrate with. And of course, one of them at the top of the list was Bill Irwin. Bill and I, after Scapin, had talked at length about going back to Beckett. I first produced Bill here with Texts for Nothing, which was his version of these Beckett short texts. And we worked really well together then. And we both love Beckett so much. And we loved working on it um, together. Then he did Full Moon. Then we brought Full Moon back. Then we did Scapin. He really wanted to come back. And he knew next season he has this television show called Monday Mornings. And so this was the only window. So in this slot, originally we were going to do Twelfth Night. But because this was the only window that Bill had for the next 18 months, we sort of grabbed it. You know, Endgame we've been talking about for many, many years. I think for Bill, in in interesting ways, it's it's very personal. Bill has two very, very aged parents, not like Naganell in that they are in ash cans, but aged parents in Mendocino, and he has an adopted son who's in his 20s. And so there was something about Endgame, about where Ham sat between these generations that was incredibly poignant and interesting to Bill to explore. I have a core company here at ACT. These remarkable actors. So when we knew we were going to do Endgame, I wanted to make sure I also kept those wonderful actors on contract and gave them work. And the three that were not in Endgame, because Nick Gabriel is in our company, he plays Clove, were Annie Purcell, Renee Augustin, and Anthony Fusco. And so I thought about play for them, because I think it's such a delicious, hilarious piece, unbelievably difficult to do. You need actors with astonishing technical verbal skills, but also big emotional range and sense of humor. So I thought it'd be a great challenge for them. And they're both obviously meditations on on death and love and family and mortality. So they've actually sat very beautifully together. The uh, lighting in particular for for play is is just amazing. I mean, they have to be right on and they have to speak very, very quickly. What floored me is the depth of the play 
It's the same play done twice. That's correct. You get to the end of it, and Beckett says, repeat play. So one of the things you get to explore as a director is, how do you want the repetition to go? In life, this is a play about people caught in hell repeating the incidents of their adultery over and over and over again. And so you can repeat it much more urgently, much more rapidly, with much less light, with a very different quality the second time. But you start to hear things the second time you never heard the first time, which is what's kind of brilliant about it. It seems that from what you're saying, there's a tremendous, despite the limitations that Beckett puts, there's a tremendous amount of leeway for mm. you as a director. I have always found that Beckett gives you extraordinary freedom. People think he's so constricting, and a lot of directors don't like to do Beckett because they think it's very, uh, you're hamstrung. I think on the contrary, there is enormous range in how you cast it and how you approach it and how dark it is, how light it is, how quick it is, what the tempo looks like. Um, they're really a joy to work on. The character of Clove, which is the servant, I walked out of the play thinking, oh, that's Ham's son. Right. But that's not necessarily the case. Sometimes Clove is played older, or is that's he right. always? No, Beckett never stipulates how old Clove should be. Okay. We are used to seeing it the way we see Didi and Gogo, which is two old actors. When you actually really drill down and look at it very carefully, it's certainly possible that all those stories that Ham tells about the boy, and when he says at the end of the play, I will have called my father, and I will have called my son, that he is talking about Clove. So it seemed to me... That is an interpretation that's sort of possible, and for us it made the play very resonant. The uh, slapstick, is that part of Beckett, too? Well, yes, Beckett loved vaudeville and loved physical comedy, and you see this all over. You see it in, in Waiting for Godot constantly, but certainly also in Endgame, these crazy routines with the flea and killing the flea and the rat and killing the flea and looking in the ash cans and dropping the lids. That's all very much from a sort of Punch and Judy tradition. At the same time, though, there was a performance way back when where they put it in a subway station or something, and Beckett yes. just... Just hated that. I think that's that that situation reveals something very interesting about Beckett. You know, you have a lot of leeway to interpret within the envelope of the play. If he had wanted to make it a realistic play and set it in a literal realistic place, he would have done that. So for him, the mise-en-scene, the abstraction of that bunker is part of the dramaturgy, and it felt really reductive and wrong to him to relocate the play. In comparing, say, Pinter to Beckett, is there any kind of similarity in how you might approach them as opposed to approaching a more realistic play? Very much. What I learned about both of them is they are entirely relational, meaning the characters don't exist apart from each other. Ham doesn't exist apart from Clove. Knack doesn't exist apart from Nell. You can't spend a lot of time in Beckett and Pinter trying to literally figure out biography. You know, why is Ham blind and stuck in the chair? He says, one day you will sit down and you won't get up. One day you'll close your eyes and you won't open them again. Why? We don't know. So you must play the given circumstances. That's one thing. And the other thing is the stakes are very, very high. They're both writers who are obsessed with power and with life and death. Pinter, I think, with much more about sexuality than Beckett. I think that's a much bigger trope in Pinter. And you have to pay unbelievably acute attention to the language, to where they tell you to pause, where it needs to move along, what the language sounds like is really important in both of them. A year ago, I kept going, I don't get Pinter. What's interesting is that in the past year, I saw The Caretaker. Yes. And what that did 
in a weird way is it brought me back to the homecoming right. and now I see mm. certain similarities right. and the homecoming suddenly improves, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah, no, it makes total sense. I think that with these writers being exposed to the broad corpus of their work is incredibly valuable because what they're doing is creating worlds. You know, if you saw The Caretaker and you saw The Homecoming, these are worlds of incredible menace in which people are competing for their little corner of the domain. And when you start to see that, it gets exciting and you understand what the thrill is. Do you think Pinter was heavily influenced by Beckett? Hugely. He worshipped Beckett, and he sent Beckett all the first drafts of his plays. Carrie Perloff, every year I'd go back and look at the previous year, and then mm-hmm. the next year, and then in addition to that, we have these new theaters right. uh, at ACT. So, let's talk first about the new theaters. Well, two things happened. We have this remarkable MFA program and a remarkable young conservatory, and they do a lot of performances, and we are always looking for performance spaces for them. And at the same time, we develop a lot of new work, and we've never had our own dedicated second stage. And that's always been a great sorrow to me. For 20 years, I've looked and looked and tried to figure out where we could work on material that somehow it isn't suited for our 950-seat Geary Theater. You know, it's such an exquisite theater, but it's a big theater. It's hard to take a risk in that theater consistently, although we certainly do. Putting Beckett in 900 seats, some would say, is a rather enormous risk. So my managing executive director, Ellen Richard, had the idea this year to take the front part of our costume shop, where we build all our costumes, at 7th and Market, and use it as a really funky loft-style performance space. We've always used it as a studio. So we opened it this fall, and we've done all kinds of work in there, and we just call it the costume shop. We've just closed a really raucous wild production with our third-year MFAs and some core company members of Mark Rucker's production of Midsummer Night's Dream, which was incredibly fun. We've done new work in there. We've done spoken word in there. We've done created movement projects in there. And our audience is starting to really find their way to that neighborhood, which is exciting to me because we are going to be long-term denizens of that neighborhood because we just bought The Strand, which is an old repertory movie house and then a porn theater. And it's been closed for about a decade. So we're going to make that into a 300-seat theater, really sweet, beautiful space to do really exciting new work, to do bare-bones productions of classical plays, to do our educational outreach so that we can invite all of the students from the San Francisco Unified School District with whom we are already collaborating to come and see work there, to help make work there, and to showcase our, our own students. So we're very excited about that. So you're going to have three theaters, basically. Yes. How big is the costume shop? Right now it's 49 seats. We're hoping it'll be 99. It sometimes seems as if people are kind of over-emoting at the Geary, and I asked an artistic director Mm. unnamed about it, and he said that you have a very specific problem in that most theaters aren't trying to reach a second balcony. It's a very large space to fill, and we tend to rely on the authentic acoustic human voice. So... I'm sure it's true if you sit very close that you feel there's a kind of largeness to it because it's filling an enormous cavity, both vocally, but also emotionally and kinesthetically and imaginatively. You're playing to a group of people who are way up above you and trying to be generous to them. Those are the cheap seats, and that's the audience you want to develop for the future. Does that create any kind of hardship for you as a director? 
No, I, I mean, it, it imposes certain restrictions. The Geary requires very linguistically rich plays. It is not a good place for American realism. It just dies in there. Pinter has incredibly muscular language. I've never had a problem with Pinter in there or Beckett or, you know, O'Neill or August Wilson or whatever. But if you did a very naturalistic play, you know, certain kinds of very kind of inward looking drama, it doesn't work there at all. So, yes, certainly for the Strand, more intimate plays will be possible. Is that going to be another proscenium? Not really. It's an end stage. The audience will be facing the stage, but the stage won't be behind a proscenium arch. Well, it wouldn't be like, I guess, the thrust at Berkeley. I wish that's my favorite theater. That's such a beautiful theater. It's not three quarters like that, but the rake of the house is somewhat like that. So the sight lines will be terrific. Carrie Perloff, let's go back and look a little bit at the previous season. Tales of the City was a huge success. Now that we're a year later, is that going to go anywhere? They're still working on it, so hope springs eternal. It's um, It was such a joy to do. As I always said, the most important thing to me was that it have a great life in San Francisco, and it ran all summer. It has sort of paid for an enormous amount of things to happen in its wake, and I feel incredibly grateful to it. I think for it to have its next life, they need to go back and probably make it a little bit smaller. It's a very big show, very big to bring either to New York or to tour, huge cast size, huge number of costumes, etc. So I think they'll probably want to pare it down and, and streamline the storyline a bit. And such a great creative team, and I know they want to keep it alive. It struck me that there was a little bit too much going on, yes. and yet at the same time, I kept thinking, how do you cut it? Right. It's a really wonderful gift to see it up, because once you see it and you watch it for a while, you start to say, okay, this storyline is you know, primary. This could actually go away. This is the character that's most exciting. This less so. Um, you can't spend time with everybody and get to know them all. And so we learned a lot. And that's always what you hope on the first outing of a big show like that. Once in a lifetime, there's a piece in, uh, I think the words. On plays? Uh -huh. Yeah. About how Kaufman and Hart tried to fix the second act. I was watching it and I kept thinking they didn't succeed. Well, it's true. You know, it's much more of a shaggy dog tail than it is a tightly plotted piece. That is absolutely true. I just thought there was so much joy in the discovery of this new technology. And because we're in the middle of a similar eruption in social media, it was moving to me to watch them wrestle as writers with this invention of sound and talking pictures and how insanely cyclical and volatile it was and nobody could predict how it was going to land it was quite delightful to explore. I take it it's not something you're necessarily going to bring back. We very rarely bring a show back. Right. I mean, you know, I'm doing Arcadia again next season, which I'm thrilled out of my mind about, but that's because we did it at the stage door. We've never done it at the Geary. It was before we got back into the Geary after the earthquake, and every single year my audience comes to me and says, excuse me, when are we going to get Arcadia again? So very occasionally we'll bring something back, but not that often. It's weird that theater is not like opera that way. Opera, you can do the same repertoire year after year, but theater doesn't seem to work that way. You're listening to an interview with Carrie Perloff, artistic director of ACT in San Francisco, currently director of two plays by Samuel Beckett, Endgame and Play, which are playing through June 3rd. Carrie Perloff, the next show you did was Brace. Brace, yes. After I walked out, I realized, my God, we're seeing mammoth and right-wing tropes set within this very, very well-written play, but it's only afterward when you sit down and talk mm. about it, boy, his right-wing stuff just came to the fore. It was fascinating. I don't know that, you know, it's that easy to say this is his right-wing stuff. You know, the play starts with the black guy saying to a white guy, 
Do you know what you can say, on the, you as a white man can say on the subject of race in America? Nothing. We are in a very charged, polarized moment where having real discourse about you know, issues of race and gender are incredibly difficult. And he throws us into the middle of a very real circumstance and asks, what is the nature of justice in a culture that is this polarized by race? It was certainly the best post-play discussions we ever had. The audience wouldn't leave. We had lawyers, we had judges, we had social workers, we had people who work in racial equality come and duke it out. It was really a great springboard for a lot of thinking. However one feels about the piece, the way it's set up, produces discussion, which brings me to the notion of the value of theater. I don't think you can get that by watching a movie. Well, I do think the live experience of something being uh, uh, lived through and duked out and argued out in real time in front of you is very palpable. I, I, I have seen people walk out of movies and, and argue it, but it's much it's at a much greater distance. You feel, as in the audience of race, you feel implicated, as you did in Clyburn Park, as you did in some ways in Maple and Vine. That was another play that people had huge arguments about afterwards. You know, people saying to me, is it really true that women today would choose to go back and be homemakers and, and, and want to go back and live in the 50s? Well, I certainly hope not. The thought of that makes me really despair. But I do know that the idea of today of women being able to have it all is very um, is still very challenging and difficult. And I think people are questioning the choices that they've made in their lives and why the the brass ring leads them to make certain choices. So again, Maple and Vine, I think, was an unfinished play. I don't think it had its own sort of complete ending, but sometimes when that happens, the audience can really fill that void. I love shows that people don't leave their seats and, and are arguing and talking about it afterwards and standing in the lobby. It's fun to listen to. Humor abuse with Lorenzo Pisoni, he's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, just amazing. You know, when I asked him years ago, when I first saw this piece in a workshop in New York, I said, you must bring this to San Francisco. I will give you the gear. Just tell me when. And he kept saying, I don't know. It's such a big stage. I think you're crazy. It'll crash and burn. And it was the most successful thing we've done in years. People came back two and three times. I think partly because it's all of our history. You know, this is a boy who grew up in San Francisco in the 70s and and people really remember the pickles in those early days. But I also think... It's because it was so brutally honest. It's very moving and in some ways upsetting. What are the dates of that? It's coming back. It's coming back in August for three weeks in August, the second three weeks of August. And already people are lining up to see him again. Is there going to be a pay-as-you-go and $10? Oh, yeah, always. We always do that. Scorched is another show you did this past season. They made a movie from it called Incendies. And for me, it was fascinating being able to compare the original play to the film. I loved the film. The playwright liked it less so, but it's very different. You know, film needs to operate by very different rules. This is a suspense drama, a thriller about two twins who journey into the Middle East to discover their identity. I think it's an incredible piece of writing. In the film, a lot of the writing had to be cut back. You can't be that prolix in a film. And the way that the secrets got paid out is very different because, again, in film, that's, you know, very different. It's a very live experience. I think he's a major writer and and he actually turned up to work with us right before it opened and uh, unexpectedly and that was so moving to see this man who'd lived through the Lebanese Civil War who was really a displaced person wrestling with his own legacy. The other play that I have on my list is Higher. How did you find the time within your 
administrative work and your directorial work to work seriously on getting this thing down? Well, I've always also been a writer and just done it on my own time. Often in the summer, I'll go to Sundance or New York Stage and Film, or this year I'm going to a writer's retreat called Steamboat Springs in Colorado. I think the hardest thing about running a theater is you're just squeezed dry all the time because you're there to serve everybody's needs, the audience, the board, your donor base, your staff, and all the artists with whom you work. And so writing is a chance for me to replenish, to tell my own stories, to think about what I'm really interested in. So it is stolen moments, but it's very revivifying. It's really a joy to finally see it on its feet. Oh, really? I yeah. Mean, three, had, well, you saw I had never seen it mounted. We'd done three workshops, but I'd never seen a full production of it. So it was thrilling. And you're just sitting there beaming the whole time? I was a complete nervous wreck, really? but Mark Rucker took good care of me. That would be a play that it would be nice to bring back to one of the We've small thought about that. We've thought about bringing it back to the Strand. A lot of our audience has asked for that. So, yeah, we're thinking about that. Carrie Perloff, the next show, is the one that I've been looking forward to being an old Broadway fan and also having the score, which is probably Kander and Ebb's best score in mm, years, I which is Scottsboro. So. Yeah. This is a piece I fell in love with when it was done off-Broadway. I thought it was a thrilling Brechtian way of looking at a really terrible incident in the early 30s in American history, these nine black boys who were incarcerated and accused falsely of having molested these white women, and, and their lives were really destroyed, and many, many trials later they were finally exonerated. It could be very rough sledding and heavy going, but it isn't. It's told in an incredibly immediate, visceral way. There's extraordinary dance. It's very moving. It's really Susan Stroman at her best, and as you say, Kendra, at their best, the musical writing is exquisite. Well, it's sort of a, a minstrel show take on this. However, instead of white people That's in blackface, right. it's almost all black cats. That's right. And they're not literally in whiteface, but they are performing the white women. They perform the Jewish New Yorker, the lawyer who comes down to defend them. So it's very transformative in that kind of Brechtian way. They're not trying to tell it realistically. They were trying to find a really theatrical way of getting the audience involved. And the uh, pay-as-you-wish day is June 28th. I, right. I, I singled that no, out No, I'm here. so glad you did, but I also want to stress, it is always possible to come to ACT for what you can afford to pay. The balconies are great seats. They're always very cheap. There are lots of ways to, to get into ACT for 15 bucks or under, and uh, so it's, you know, like going to a movie. So price shouldn't should not deter people. Other shows you're doing, Electra, uh, New Translation, now you directed that in L.A. I did a version of this production in L.A. with the great, great Olympia Dukakis. She's another artist on the top of my 20th anniversary list. She is the fiercest chorus you have ever seen. She just took on that play and ran with it. Renee Augustin will play Electra. Anthony Fusco will play the tutor. David Lang, Pulitzer Prize winning composer and my longtime collaborator will create the music. It's live cello. I'm just chomping at the bit. It's uh, one of the great Greek tragedies. We did get a chance to, to work on this translation with, the, with Timberlake at the Getty Villa in Los Angeles. So we've, we've seen it up and working. And it's a really again, a kind of only in live theater experience, you know, where the actors talk directly to the audience as the jury between Clytemnestra and Electra trying to decide who was right and who was wrong about the murder of Agamemnon. And why are you doing Streetcar? Well, 
I, again, looked back to see which were the plays of the last 20 years that our audience had loved the most. Our audience adores Tennessee Williams. We did Streetcar many, many, many years ago, and one of my sorrows when we did it is a young actress named Renee Augustin had put herself on tape to play Stella, and we fell in love with her then and cast her, and then she couldn't end up doing it, but that's how we met Renee. And ever since then, we've wanted Renee to play Blanche. Uh, she has the makings of a great Blanche in her, and we wanted Annie Purcell to play, who's in our company now as well, to play Stella, and we thought they'd be so beautiful as a match that we wanted to see them do it together in the Geary stage. Have you cast Stanley yet? Uh, well, we're working on it, but I won't tell you who we've gone to till we get him. Dead Metaphor by George F. Walker. Yeah. Is that an original play? It's a world premiere. George Walker is one of the great Canadian playwrights. And in the 90s, he had plays produced all over and was hugely successful in New York. He wrote a play called Escape from Happiness that got produced everywhere and that Irene Lewis, who's directing our production, directed for Yale Rep. And then he started doing a lot of film and television, so he's now back to writing for the theater. This is the most scabrous black comedy about a sniper who returns from Iraq and tries to get a job and live a life in contemporary America and why that's so difficult. And he gets involved with a very nasty political campaign run by a woman candidate who's a bit of a Sarah Palin, Michelle Bachman type. So we thought it would be great to do in this election year. Stuck Elevator is another original This play. is another world premiere. This is a season of some really exciting new work. I found this at the Sundance Institute last year when I was a consultant, and I thought it was the most original piece of music theater I had heard in many, many years. Young composer from Seattle, Byron O. Young, and a hip-hop artist from New Haven named Aaron Jafferis, based on a true story of a Chinese delivery guy who gets stuck in an elevator in the Bronx and doesn't dare push the button because he's illegal and he doesn't want to get deported when he comes out, and it's his hallucination as he panics in that elevator and remembers his life in China and what it was like for him to smuggle aboard a ship to come to America and the crazy things that go on in the Chinese restaurant he works at. It's funny and alive and really immediate. And I partly really wanted to do a Chinese-American piece in honor of our new mayor next year. And then there's Arcadia. And then there's Arcadia, which is Tom Stoppard's most beautiful play. One of the reasons I wanted to do it is that it has extraordinary young roles, and the third-year MFA class of ACT's program next year was sort of born to do that play. And I knew it the minute they walked in two years ago in the first year. We have a young actress who's sort of really born to play Thomasina. She has to be brilliant and charismatic, but look 13. It's very hard to find, and so this seemed to be its moment. Uh, The other play much like Scottsboro Boys is an import. Black Watch, it's going to be at the San Francisco Mission Armory. It's the Armory. Yeah. And it's from the National Theater of Scotland. This was one of the most important sort of explosive pieces to come out of the international theater circuit in the last decade. It ran through for three separate runs at St. Anne's in New York. It is an explosive piece of drama directed by the director of the Broadway hit Once right now, John Tiffany. It's really kinesthetic and thrilling and sad about a group of Scottish uh, soldiers who go to Iraq. It's told through song and movement and a beautiful script. And it needs a huge space where the audience sits on both sides. It couldn't fit at the Geary. We've looked for years for the right space. We looked all over town and we finally landed at the Armory. And I think it will be spectacular there. Carrie Perloff, what's the ACT Education Initiative? 
Well, for many years, ACT has had a very robust student matinee program and a program called Art Reach, where we go into the schools and uh, work with kids before they come and see the shows. What we've realized in the last few years is that arts education is all but disappearing in the public school system and that we need to step forward as content providers and as collaborators much more strongly than we have in the past. So our brilliant publications manager, Elizabeth Broderson, became our education director, and she has transformed the program. We now have an in-house program with a school called Downtown High School for Kids at Risk who have not succeeded in any other high school setting, and we train them here through drama to think about literacy and thinking and social issues, and it's been thrilling. They've ended up writing their own pieces that 826 Valencia is going to publish and performing their own pieces, and now we're adding the Ida B. Wells School and two other schools to that program. I'm madly trying to get funding for it because we have the teaching artists who are ready to go if we can really fund it, but I want us to provide inspiration and educational opportunities for as many public school kids in San Francisco as we possibly can. You've been listening to an interview with Carrie Perloff in her 20th year as Artistic Director of ACT. Samuel Beckett's plays Play and Endgame are playing through June 3rd, and then in August comes Three Weeks of Humor Abuse by Lorenzo Pisoni. Uh, also, Show Choir playing in June at Zeeum and announced just after this interview was completed, the recent Broadway production of Larry Kramer's play, The Normal Heart, will be coming to ACT this September. I'm Richard Walensky on Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. who pledged to KPFA in our spring fundraiser. But we still need your help to meet our goal. We're about $50,000 short of our goal, so we're asking you to please go online to kpfa.org and make your pledge to KPFA securely online. Again, thanks to everybody who participated in our fund drive. We can't do this without you. kpfa.org, thank you.